This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. Doug Gibson is a prolific local writer on his blogs like Plan 9 Crunch and Culture of Mormonism, and in books like Tales from Two-Bit Street and Beyond, Parts 1 and 2. He held several positions with the Standard Examiner, including editorial page editor, until he left in 2016. So I, I always loved journalism, too. I, I, this is really silly, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I used to make up stories when I was a kid and write them like they were, like they were newspaper articles <laughs> yeah. on a typewriter. So do you, have you ever written fiction? Like, have you ever been a fiction Yeah, I've, I have like about, um, I have about, I've written a lot of fiction. I've actually written an unpublished novel. It's probably best it's unpublished. Uh-huh. But I've had about 12, or 12, probably 12 short stories published in anthologies. And I have another one coming out. Believe it or not, it's about Ed Wood. It's an Ed Wood anthology. I mean, you know, the, the internet and the world today provides a lot of um, genres, you know, you can get. Yeah. And I've had about six or seven essays published in books, too. Oh, okay. And, yeah, so I've, I've, done, I've had a lot of success. I mean, well, regional, but I've had a lot of success in writing. Uh-huh, okay. yeah. Uh, writing a book about Ed Wood, like what you say about the internet is true, that there's, but it almost feels like there's, it's all been covered, you know? How do you find enough for a book that's not been covered about Ed Wood? You know, there's so much. Um, in a case like Ed Wood, you got this guy who made a few movies that... He made cult films because you can't replicate them, okay? You can laugh at them. You can say they're crappy. You can say, this plan knife from outer space is the worst thing I've ever seen. But you cannot replicate a cult film, and that is the key. People need to understand that. There are tons and tons and tons of derivative crap out there in, in movies. But a cult film, whether it be Ed Wood, Andy Milligan, Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, or, or anybody else you want to think about, um, John Waters or something like that, mm-hmm. they can't really replicate what they put on the screen. And it's for Ed Wood, he had this mysterious life where he made these movies and he sunk eventually into pornography, okay? And he died at the age of 53 because he just drank too much, kicked out of his house. That there's so many things that you don't know about his life and people are constantly trying to dig stuff up like that. I'm a huge Bela Lugosi fan. I mean, I live and breathe Bela Lugosi. Okay. And there are some guys, um, Gary Don Rhodes is another guy, and Bill Kaffenberger, I think, who are going out into Hungary and are searching to find areas of his life that nobody ever knew about. So you really can unearth things about people despite the Internet, because half what's in the Internet might not be true anyways. Mm-hmm. So you go out there and do what they call shoe leather reporting, and you find some stuff. Um, it, it's, it's, so it, it's, you're able to do these things. You're able yeah, to find yeah, yeah. things about people. <clears throat> so how long have you been writing about film? Well, um, I guess you would start... I've done it for a long time, but I guess we started a blog. Steve Stones is an artist, and he's an adjunct at Weber State. And we started a blog called Plan 9 Crunch mm-hmm. in 2008. We've had almost probably more than 1,000 posts now. And we just, we just started writing about the films we love to see. I mean, some cults are pretty big, like an Ed Wood cult, and some cults are pretty small, like an Andy Milligan cult. But we wrote about these films, we talked about them, and people like to, to, people, the thing about cult is people like to talk about it over and over and over and over, and they dig the minutia, okay, of this stuff, if you're really into it. And so we never run out of things to, to write about. I, um, I, in fact, I'm reviewing the 1955 Miracle on 34th Street, no one has ever seen, there's a TV show, 
the, every, the one everybody's seen is the 1947 classic one with Maureen O'Sullivan and Edmund Quinn. And I thought it'd be fun to let people know there's another one out there. There's actually three or four out there, but this one was on TV and a big deal in 1955. I'm guessing you guys are just like hanging out, watching those movies and stuff. Yeah, and every Friday, Steve and I watch a film together. And the beautiful thing about a cult film is you can watch it over and over. And I think I've watched Planet Nine from Outer Space probably 185 times in my wow. lifetime. And you just, you, you talk about it, you see something. Have you heard of Troll 2? Yeah. The Troll 2 has a cult. I, in fact, in 2008, we went to um, where it was filmed in Morgan, where they had <laughs> Nilbog, which is Goblin Backwards. That's the whole, the whole Troll 2 is about, uh, it's an anti-vegetarian tale about goblins that, that, that turn you into vegetarians and eat you. <laughs> but... Um, but you can't replicate this film, all right? Yeah. I mean, you can laugh at it. Darren Ewing, who, who I don't know if he still lives in Ogden, but he lives in northern Utah. He's one of the stars of it. And um, they, had, they had, what's that? The, art, the place where, where artists have a big thing they can go to. They had a Troll 2 convention a couple of years ago. Oh. Yeah, so it's just, these things hang on. People, people make them, make them, um, make them live on, basically. Uh-huh. Well, and like Troll 2 and Plan 9 you mentioned, those are even kind of like Utah cult kind of movies. Well, Plan 9 is more Southern California. Oh, is it? Yeah. You're thinking of Plan Plan 10 from Outer Space, which came out about 20 years ago, which is a Utah movie. Oh, okay. And in fact, the star writes, I think she writes, um, I can't remember her name now, um, but she writes for the Salt Lake Tribune. And Trent Harris, who made the movie... He's also made Reuben and Ed, which is a cult film. Yeah, right. Um, I think they write for the Trib now or something like that. Huh. They're not making movies, yeah. That's a definite Utah thing. Yeah. And Troll 2 is a Utah thing, although it's all over the country. I mean, there's fanatical Troll 2 fans in California, New York, things all over the world. Yeah. And so, like, is that... Is the is there criteria for a cult film? Is it just something that people ended up gravitating to for some reason? I, the thing is, a cult film grabs you because of the director's approach to how they're putting it on the screen. And, and I told you, it can, the, the key thing is it cannot be duplicated. Like, people have tried to make sequels to these movies, okay? Yeah. But when you're deliberately making a cult film, you're not making a cult film. A cult film has to be unintentionally created. Right, and it has to, Steve calls it, my friend Steve calls it, a malformed puppy that you grow to love, all right? <laughs> or less, and you take care of. And, and you, you, Suriel is probably also a, a thing when you're thinking about cult films. They're like from another, it's almost like a different dimension. I like to, I like to think of the term slipstream, which means several different ideas and existences and get merged into one thing sometimes when you make a film and it leaves this kind of impression on you. There are recent cult films, one's called The Room, Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a huge fan of it, but I mm-hmm. do find it hilarious. Okay. Uh-huh. Tommy Wiseau, I think, uh-huh. is the guy that directed that. And so cult films can come up. and they, 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 There's a book, a guy named Danny Perry wrote a book called Cult Films, occult movies or films um, in the 80s, and he had 150 of them mentioned. They, they, gone, they went from John Waters, uh, what's it called, uh, Pink Flamingos, to, um, to The Wizard of Oz, okay? Mm. The Plan 9 from Outer Space to The Searchers, even, all right? So even mainstream films can have cult if, if they can just, you, you, if they just have that idea that you can't replicate it. Yeah, yeah. And so Plan Nine Crunch is a reference to Plan Nine, the movie. Yeah, Steve right? did a con- Steve. Steve does a lot of um, a lot of the genre art, and one is Plan Nine Crunch, 
and it has Tor Johnson in it and all the other characters. Tor Johnson's that big Swedish wrestler. You probably recognize the face, but um, it's called Plan 9 Crunch, and it's sort of our logo, and we just call it Plan9Crunch.blogspot.com. Okay. Yeah. And you guys just, like, is there a schedule to that? You just kind of, when you have it? Uh, no, we, we, we've probably gone down from, like, putting a lot on a, uh, a year to about 30 now, but at least two or three times a month they come out, you know, and mm. it's not really a schedule. Um, I'm trying to do a couple in December. We had one, a guy, what I love is old 19th century literature. So I have a friend in Japan who puts together anthologies of Christmas ghost stories and Christmas tales. So I did a blog post about those, trying to tub thump it a bit, you know, for the guy. And I'm doing this Miracle on 34th Street thing. But we have done so many Christmas um, blog posts. We're running out of things to think about, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you've got other blogs, too. You kind of have the same... Yeah, I, I had one on politics um, that I barely do now. Uh -huh. um, I had one on... Um, Oh, I have one called Plan 9 Crunch of the Day, okay? That we were trying back in 2008 and 2009 to do a daily one. That didn't quite work out. <laughs> Sometimes I'll go back to it and share something, and it still gets about 50 hits a day, that blog. Uh -huh. and, but normally they've all been transposed over to Plan 9 Crunch, the main blog. But the other one that probably people haven't heard about is Culture of Mormonism. Yeah. Um, dot blogspot dot com. Yeah. And I used to write for the Standard Examiner when I was the editor a column. Well, it was called um, Current. No, the, the, it was an online magazine called Currents, and I wrote Standard Works. Mm. And I wrote about religion, mm -hmm. either history or some kind of theology thing. And Cal Grandal, who was the cartoonist then, did um, cartoons for it. And so probably did about 500 of those. Oh. You know, and about maybe four, maybe a hundred were junk, but four hundred were pretty good. Uh -huh. And so I moved those over, and I still do about twenty a year of book reviews, uh -huh. or whenever I'm thinking of something, you know. And and it's all about religion. And um, my my idea of religion is transparency, transparency, transparency. Mm -hmm. And so I like to do about history and things like that. And there's a lot of good good um, biographies and nonfiction books that come out. One was. Oh, Vengeance is Mine or something. It's a new book on the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Yeah. And I did a review of that for yeah. it. And um, I read that. It was really good. Thanks. And then there's, what was, oh, there was this movie. This is a cult film. I got to do both, okay? <laughs> okay. A movie called um, Coriantumur, Tale of Nephite Love, was made. A Tale it, of Nephite Love? Nephite Love. or <laughs> oh, Lephi, wow. Something like that. I may be butchering <laughs> the title a little bit. Uh -huh. But I wanted to see that for years. Because it's based on a book that a guy named B.H. Roberts, a general authority, wrote, okay? And it was made, and it was a huge flop, okay? It only made money in the Mormon corridor. And it was made like around 1930. It's very theatrical. It's like a silent movie with some dialogue, okay? Uh -huh. And I wanted to see it for so long. And BYU found it, cleaned it up, and they haven't released it. BYU should release it, but, you know. Uh, but anyway, so they show it occasionally, at the Varsity Theater. So I went, and it was packed oh. um, in March, and I got to see this movie. And this, the funny thing is, do you know what pre-code means? Pre-code uh, films, oh, no, no, pre no. films oh, yes. were before they clamped down. Right. And so this movie... Like the studio code or something. Yeah, yeah, and they had a guy named Breen and Hayes, Will Hayes and Joseph Breen, who clamped down. And after 1936, you, you thought that people didn't have sex anymore, okay? So the thing is, but... Um, 
this movie about Coriantumr, it's about Coriantumr, who is a son of Alma, and he's sort of fascinated by this um, courtesan or something who in, in, in another city. So the movie is a little bit sexy, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's very pre-code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very moralistic. Uh-huh. The acting is very over the top. It's a total cult film, and I'm so happy uh-huh. I saw it. And we did a big, long blog post in, in March or so about it. Yeah. It's something that could have gone on Plan 9 Crunch, but because it has this thing, I wanted to put it on the, um, the blog, the Culture of Mormonism blog. And then there's also movies that involve the Mormon faith, which I have put on the blog called... There's a movie called um, oh, Trapped by the Mormons that was very anti-Mormon, 1922. Oh. And there's another one, the name escapes me. This is on the blog that I can't remember the name, but it was Cecil B. DeMille made it. It was a really huge anti-Mormon film made in 1916 that was very popular. Uh-huh. And that I was able to see on YouTube. YouTube is an interesting thing because sometimes you'll see something on YouTube and then someone will yank it off. But there's a blog post both on, the, both on Culture of Mormonism and um, Plan 9 Crunch on that. And then there's a guy in the 1970s who made a whole bunch of fire and brimstone Christian films for a director who used to make nudie cuties about 20 years earlier that was shown in Southern, um, his name was, I love this name, Estes W. Perkle, okay? <laughs> and, um, but he made a bunch of films like The Burning Hell, you know, and, and anti-communism films that were very, very poor, but they were a big hit in, ba- in, in, in footwash and Baptist congregations in the South. And they're hysterical. I did a whole blog post about those movies, which have actually gotten um, some release because they become cult films too. Huh. All right. So there's a widespread <clears throat> thing out there, you know. There, there, there was even a, a film made uh, by the Mormons in the 19 teens about either I can't remember the beginning of the church or about about the Book of Mormon, but it's lost unfortunately. Huh. Most silent films are lost because they didn't see they didn't see a marketable value for them. They're very short-sighted. Yeah. And I'm wondering about, like, the the film culture around here has, like, really suffered, right? I mean, you used to have even Tower. Uh, here you'd have, you know, places yeah. you could see that kind of stuff. But there's not much of that anymore? Well, there's still the Salt Lake Film Society in Salt Lake. And they do a good job. But the Tower is, the tower, the tower is still hanging around. But I think it's being renovated right now. But the Blue Mouse is gone, oh. which was um, a wonderful place in Salt Lake. I saw one of the most repellent films though I ever hated called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer there. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a cult film, but I can, I can pass on that one. Yeah. There used to be uh, more people. Um, I think it's there. Like that little art house across yeah. the street here, they, they sort of gave up. They showed a lot of movies, but now they just rent it out. Yeah. And, and uh, I can't remember her name, but a young woman, a woman started a, books, a bookstore just down the street here called Booked on 25th, which didn't make it, which was a lot of fun. But this place here still has some culture with it, you know. And Yeah, I was wondering if they were even still there, because, like, the signs are still out, but... Well, Booked, no, Booked is... Booked no, is, I mean, uh, our yeah, house. Yeah, it's rented out to people now. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you something, if I had the money, I'd buy that instead of Film Society, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> knock on wood, right? <laughs> but um, there is a lot of people here who like this stuff. Yeah. And I don't know what Weber State does. I don't know if they have Film Societies. Um, the street, the, the historic thing we have on Washington... Um, we'll occasionally show good movies sometimes. Yeah. They used to show old silent movies a generation ago. We'd go to see them. Um, and Sundance is gone from now here, which is a bit of a shame. Right. You might have touched on something when you said we have the internet. There's so much stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. There are movies that, that in the 1990s, I would pay $25, $30 for a murky VHS 
that are easily available now on the internet oh, somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of these film, these film things are struggling because they can't get people to buy them if you can get them on the streamer now. Yeah. Right. It's tough. It's like you need. I mean, I feel like you need that community for some of that, some of those films to even become cult films in the first place. You yeah. Know? I'll tell you something. My friend, my blogger thinks I'm a little silly. My wife thinks I'm really silly for this. But I, if I see a movie like Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, okay, which is a cult film and a lot of fun to watch, if I see it on one of these small TV stations, which it was on Channel it's on Cozy or something, I will sit there, go out of my way to watch it because I know other people are watching it, okay? Uh-huh. I feel some kind of community there. Other people scoff at that, but I really think I try to do that. Do you ever, like, submit the things that you write for the blogs? Do you ever submit those other places to be published? It's just all kind of for the blog. Uh, what have I done for movies trying to get published? Uh, yeah, there is a place called um, the Moderate Voice blog that basically um, will publish anything I want to publish. Mm. All right? um, and cause I, I, so that, that goes, some of those are cross-posted. Yeah. But mainly when I'm trying to submit, I'm trying to write... Um, it's trying. It's the, it's the fiction and stuff like that. Yeah, or essays. And so, what is your published fiction? Go back to that. Well, uh, I have um, about twelve stories. Um, a lot of them are with the Tales books. Uh-huh. And the Tales books, the first two are Tales on on Two Bit Street One and Two, mm-hmm. and they are ghost legends and stories mm-hmm. based on that. And then there was Tales of the Wasatch and Beyond, which is tales of basically all of Utah. And I wrote a, a story about Thistle which is that town which is almost a ghost town. Yeah, by like Spanish Fork? It's, it's out, out there on the, way oh. to like, on the way to that middle of Utah where they have a temple at Manti. It's on the way to Manti. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then there's a Tales of, um, gosh, you know, it's, it's, the, publisher's gonna, the publisher, it's a small publisher, <laughs> but um, there's one about Tales from the, from the canyon and also, uh, and I have one of my, I have a couple of stories in those. All right, also, and and then there's um, then sh- then there's a whole bunch of other stories like there's there's one about fleeting moments where like you have an experience that you that changed your life. And one of my favorite is, and it's for all these books are for sale at Queen Bee, by the way. Oh, and cool. they um, one is called the Best Worst Christmas, and this was a chance to write comedy. And so I wrote a story about this, this old-fashioned Christmas carol that my father coveted and its ultimate demise, all right? And so that was a lot of fun. And then I wrote a couple of books. That, oh, they published a book about the year we lost, which oh. was about the year of COVID and how uh-huh. you dealt with it. And these are from people all over the world. It's not just northern Utah the stories come from. And I got to write about the isolation my father had experienced before he died and things mm-hmm. like that. And then there's another one that came out about this one I wrote. I think it was about love stories, all right? And I didn't write about our love story. I think it would be a little bit... I mean, we have a wonderful love story, but it would be a little sappy to put on print. Um, <laughs> I wrote about my parents, okay? My dad was a dirt-poor kid from Alabama. My mom was a, a foster child in, in, in L.A., and they met at a baseball stadium. So that was fun. Wow. My wife is from Hungary, okay? And the latest book that came out from this publisher is Coming to America. Um, uh, what's it called? Coming to America, Modern Day Tales of Immigration. And my wife, who immigrated from Hungary, her father was a dissident and, and was spent time in a concentration camp in Hungary after the 56 revolution. Mm. She wrote about her experiences trying to make it to America. So it was an opportunity for her to write something, okay? And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And 
And so, so it's a lot of nonfiction short stories. Yeah, but I've I've been published elsewhere. In um, I have an essay on my son's life. We had a son who died of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, mm. and that's in a book called um, called uh, Moth and Rust: Latter Day Saint Experiences on Death, published by Signature. And I've had I've had artic- I've had stuff published in Mormon publications like Dialogue, and um, and ter- I can't remember what it's called now. Another publication too, so reviews and things like that, mm-hmm. and some, and another book, also, on death that was published by a publisher in Texas, and then I have a book coming out from a publisher in Pittsburgh. Well, it's a short story in a book, the Ed Wood anthology of yeah. short stories based on him. Yeah, so I've probably been published about fifteen or sixteen times, and I, I joined the Utah League of, of Writers, which I thought was helpful because there's a lot of, you know, people read your stuff and. And um, oh, I had a book published um, by some publishers in Idaho. It's either Idaho or Logan um, on Mormon missionary stories too recently, mm. and that was fun. And I've started to write dark horror, but I haven't <laughs> found a publisher for a story called "The Demon in the Cemetery." Um, but I'm looking. Oh. <laughs> And, like, how does a writer do that? Like, I assume at first you sort of have some pieces that you shop around. But later, when you're talking about these, like, there are these themed books coming out, you must have kind of heard Well, that the themed books, I get solicited on those, yeah. fortunately, because I've been doing them so long now. Um, someone will say, hey, there's a story. In that. But there's a website called Duotrope um, where you can learn more about trying to, to get maybe an agent to help you. Uh-huh. Or, and there's more Writer's Digest where you can solicit stuff. All right? mm. there's, they're out there. Utah League of Writers will, will, will give you lots of good information on, on finding editors and, and publishers. And they're constantly mentioning contests or, um, yeah, that sounds cool. or, or anthologies seeking submissions. Like I entered a contest and it was fun. I think I won second on it. And, and that was a lot of fun. But then I put my demon in the cemetery. didn't even place. Okay, so, <laughs> so you learn, you know, and stuff like that. I, and I have a really good friend I want to tub thump him a little bit. His name is um, Pat Nielsen. He writes under the title Dean Patrick. And he is the best dark horror writer I've ever met. He lives in Morgan. He's written, um, the first book is called The Lady Mephistopheles about a demon. It's a three-part series. So yeah, I gave him a little bit of tub thump there. He's, yeah. he's a superb writer and edits a lot of my stuff, which I really appreciate. Oh, great. Well, and I was wondering, because I saw, you know, you've been going around with the other authors from Tales from Two-Wit Street, Volume 2. So I, that's fairly recent, isn't it? Yeah, and those Tales books, Drini Hatting, who used to live in Morgan and lived on this street, and now is with her, um, one of her daughters and her son, if they need help, they need some assistance, is living in Gig Harbor, Washington. She is the one who's put these all together, all right? Wow. And the Tales books have sold over 20,000 copies, okay, wow. which is pretty good for an independent publisher. Yeah. The books sell pretty well. It's a labor of love. Um, I don't know um, if she would be able to tell you. I don't even know if they make, if, how much profits they make, all right? Mm-hmm. Because, but, but they've been so much fun to, to write and so much fun to, to get your creative, creativity yeah. flowing and things yeah. like that. Yeah. <clears throat> I was curious about that, just a little bit about your process. Like, it seems like you're constantly writing. Yeah. And I was wondering if the blogs are like you're tricking yourself into making sure you're writing every day, or is it more you're writing every day and you well, need somewhere to put them? The, 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 the key to writing is to sit down and write, okay? I mean, so many people say, I'm going to do it tomorrow. I, I don't want to sound condescending, but that, you have to write. Yeah. You have to just do it, you know? And writing is the beautiful thing about writing is you don't have to um, you don't have to to go to class or something 
Charles Bukowski is one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. And if people, if you haven't read Post Office, it's just a fantastic book, and his poetry is great. Yeah. And he, he didn't go to college. He was a he was a mailman for about twelve years. And he also bummed around the country, and so anybody can write. Uh-huh. It just I, it gets better with practice. <laughs> you know, putting words on paper is a good good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Because you get better. And so. Uh, so was all of your early writing journalism, is that really where you wet your teeth? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I wrote an article um, way back for the, for the um, Daily Universe about Ed Wood. Not the Daily Universe, the Daily Chronicle. Oh, okay. I went to grad school. I didn't graduate for the graduate degree, but I went to grad school at the University of Utah. And um, I wrote for the Chronicle, and I wrote a thing way back in like 1991 or something about Ed Wood. And I found it in one of their archives. That was pretty cool. But I, went, I was a journalist. I really wasn't a writer. I wanted to be a writer and things like that. I would occasionally write stuff, but it was only, only things I had published. In like, in like, I don't know, they called it the event back then. It's no longer there. The City Weekly type thing mm-hmm. was reviews. I was a journalist. I, I was a business journalist in the 90s in Boston, believe it or not. Oh. And also in Logan. And then I found the Standard and spent almost 20 years there. My goal was always to be an editorial writer. I had to sort of work myself into it. I'd volunteer to write editorials. I'd volunteer to write columns. And lo and behold, when Don Porter left, I, I managed to get the job, all right, and everything. So that's yeah. what I wanted to do in journalism. And it was a good run. I really enjoyed it. But yeah. so you studied journalism at BYU, but then yeah. went out to Boston? <laughs> trying, to, trying to get started in the business. My first job was, believe it or not, at the Ely Daily Times in Nevada for five days a week, which is probably a weekly now. In fact, I think it is. Um, paper where I was the reporter slash general no I was the sports editor slash general assignment reporter uh-huh. I was there for a year and then I sort of stumbled around for three years working at the Crony, which is a chronicle taking grad courses thinking about becoming a teacher but then I found an ad for a business writer for the publication Logan took it and then they were sold out but before I even I was only off a month, a place in Boston asked me to work for Mutual Fund Market News. So I went there for about 19 months and I saw an ad for the Chronicle, not the Chronicle, the Standard Examiner, mm. and I got the job. And so I, I've been, I was there until 2016. The election in 2016 is when I left. And um, it was just getting to the point where the industry was contracting. Uh-huh. I hadn't lost my job, but I could see it was going to not be there much longer, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm, the IRS turned out to be a great thing. Yeah. I mean, it drives me crazy, <laughs> all right? But it's a, it's a, it's a good, well-paying job. Right? Yeah. Well, and I always thought as far as jobs that let you, you know, write on your free time, you know, oh, get yeah. your work done and then... Yeah, the great thing about the IRS is you, you don't take... They don't want you to take your work home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the standard, particularly the last year, I was always doing stuff in the evening, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. Working a swing shift, though, gives you a chance to exercise, gives you a chance to write during the day, yeah. kick back, you know, and stuff like that. Right, right. What did you cover at The Standard? Well, first I was the, um, I was a copy editor at first. Uh, Pace designer, copy editor. And then I became the assistant news editor, which I helped put together the paper, all right, made the decisions. Yeah, you go from copy editor to assistant news editor? It's not. It's, it's, it's actual kind of a, a trajectory thing, although oh, okay. there are a lot of copy editors. Uh-huh. But, um, and then I started asking, I started writing you know, editorials when they wanted to and things like that. And I didn't get, when the one person left, I didn't get the news editor job, which I did apply for. I, I didn't really want it, but you know, you, you look up for something. I wanted to be the then I was offered the job of assistant editorial page editor, which is what I'd wanted for a long time. Mm. And I got that. 
And um, then I, when Don Porter left, I became the editorial page editor. That was a great job. I mean, they don't have editorial page editors now. Mm-hmm. They just write. They don't even write editorials anymore. They slap, slap together an editorial page in ten minutes yeah. by putting a couple of syndicated columnists yeah. or somebody from Weber State. No, no disrespect to Weber State. They got great columnists, but they just slap it together, put a few cartoons on. You don't get many letters anymore. Yeah, I, I can tell they hold them to put three or four in, you know, for a while. Uh, but it was a full job. I mean, you had assistants who culled through the letters, and there were a lot back then. And then you um, you had to deal with um, the editorial board, which met and hashed out opinions and stuff like that. And you had a full time cartoonist in Cal Grandel. Cal Grandel was an interesting individual. I love him to death. <laughs> he was one of the most eccentric delightfully eccentric people I've ever met. Uh-huh. And you'd talk with Cal and go through the ideas and you'd go through the letters and you'd put together the, the columns you know, that you had to write and also the online editions we had called Currents. There's just so many things to do uh-huh. that today would take 10 minutes. I mean, they would take 10 minutes today, but is there a place you go for editorials now? Local editorials, I, well, where are they? I mean, look, they still have guys like V.J. Mather writes occasionally in the Standard. He's a retired professor. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any conservatives who write columns. Um, there, there is a woman who's an advisor. What is her name? She writes very funny columns, all right? Yes. And I can't remember her name right now, who I like. And then there are some good columnists. John Kowalowski's wife, Brenda, writes a column. Um, there's Nancy, Nancy something still writes a column. She was writing it back in 1997 when I showed up. Mm-hmm. So there are good columns, but there, but there are slim pickings. There is, Ryan writes a religion column. Um, and then there's a guy from Provo who writes sort of the opposite of Ryan. He's sort of con to the church and Ryan's pro to the church, which is cool. I believed in having both sides when I was editorial page editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a woman named Meg Sanders who writes pretty good slice-of-life columns. Mm -hmm. So there's still people out there. I see. Yeah, but there's not as many as I used to. We used to have what we call Top of Utah Voices, and they would write weekly, different person all the time, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you had more political columns. There's a guy named Rick Jones, a friend of mine, who writes, he runs a lot of times as a Democrat in Utah. Mm -hmm. He writes a column occasionally, I still see him there. Yeah. You know, one of the funny things is, well, it's bittersweet of being an editorial page editor is... You occasionally will see someone who often wrote letters to the editor in the obituary call, obituary section. Uh, it's sort of bittersweet, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. Like their last editorial. Well, they just. I column. remember these people because they used to contribute letters <laughs> to the editor, you know. But back when you were doing it, the paper was actually putting resources into generating these stories pretty regularly. Now it's kind of more of an ad hoc. People are just kind of submitting them. We used to have, we always had at least one person from Uber State writing. Mm. Now we have three or four, which is not, it's not a bad thing. It's mm. just, they're going where they know they're going to get them, all right? We would have people come in for Top Utah Voices. We would have a whole thing where they would audition to be in it, all right? And when we had an editorial board, we'd have, we'd want to have one or two people. Well, we'd have three or four people out of the community, and we'd have like, 15 or 16 were asked to be in, and we had to call them. Mm-hmm. Those days are gone, yeah. okay? Right. I, I applaud the standard for one thing. It's owned by a penny-pinching firm in, in, in West Virginia, but they are still publishing a paper six days a week. The Trib and Des News don't do that anymore. Mm. They, they're just strictly online, except for one time, maybe a week. Uh, that's an interesting point, because I imagine, I always imagine you knowing what it was like and seeing it now, and 
probably seeing that there is much more opportunity for news, much more news going on, but the coverage is way down. I imagine you, like, ripping your hair out about it and wishing things were getting covered. Well, I don't want to be one of those curmudgeons that says, oh, those old is young. They don't know what they're doing now. But they are dealing with the reality. They don't have classified ads like they used to. They don't have national advertising like they used to. It is, if you, the ironic thing today is you buy a standard examiner, it's a fortune. I think it's like $1.50 or something. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're not getting the av- Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say if I don't know for sure. But it's a lot more expensive now because they don't have the ad revenue they used to have. Hmm. That's interesting. That's the problem. The internet really hurt the newspaper industry because it didn't, it didn't react to it immediately. Right. But you're kind of saying that as far as how the whole industry is doing, Standard isn't doing so bad. It's surviving. Right. Um, what newspapers like the Post and the, and, the, and the Times, they have a wide circulation online. And this is a controversial thing I'm going to say, but I believe it is newspapers now used to be biased on their editorial section. I can't tell you how many times I had to tell people, it's the editorial page, all right? Don't tell me we have a liberal bias because it's on the editorial page, all right? Uh-huh. Newspapers today that kind of have to slant their news a little bit to the left or the right mm. because they will lose subscribers. Mm. They're so, the New York Times has a subscriber base that's probably pretty heavy, overwhelming liberal, all right? So there yeah. are new issues and challenges facing, and on the right, you have the Washington Examiner and something like that. National Review is a perfect example of a newspaper, uh, not a newspaper, but a periodical that has suffered because it hasn't been slavishly devotion to Donald Trump, all right? Huh. So, so sort of in this, in an effort to make news more marketable, they've made it more editorialized so they can appeal to an audience. Yeah, I read the Washington Post daily, uh-huh. and the stories, <laughs> if you read between, you don't even have to read between the lines sometimes, all right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, but um, the, the Weekly Standard went out of business because it was anti-Trump. So it happens on the right, too. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting. So I didn't realize that you were at the Standard Clear until 2016. Was it sort of that you, they there, were downsizing over I was time? there for 19 years, and in 2016, no, 15, I was thinking of leaving but Greg Holling a really hard worker who's now in he's in Washington um, Yakima I think yeah Yakima Washington and um, he said hey do you want to do you want to be a senior reporter and I said don't make me a senior reporter but I'll be happy to be a reporter all right and I had worked during the 15 I'd also worked for a while on the entertainment section called Go which is now no longer Go is gone but um, it was a lot of fun and I said I want to be a reporter and I had fun I hadn't done straight reporting for a long time. Um, and it was, I got to cover the elections. I, I got to cover just a whole bunch of Davis County and things like that. And, it, and I was also occasionally writing editorials for the, I was on the ed board too. But um, I, people, someone like Greg might say, oh no, it was never considered. But no, I, I knew that I wasn't gonna be there forever, all right? I could see the handwriting because the salary, frankly, was a little bit too large, I think, all mm-hmm. right? And so I started, I did an article, I did a feature on the IRS. And I thought to myself, um, wow, you know, maybe this is a possibility, okay? Because I, 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 I figured I'd be gone by 2017 or something, or at least sometime that year. And so I, I, I put in an application. I had to go to usajobs.org and everything, or gov, whatever it is. And I didn't hear from him for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And then I heard from him in sections, all right? And so then I had to go online one time and deal with a phone call. Then I went down to the main office and had a picture taken. I figured, hey, this is starting to happen. <laughs> and then I got, once, once I got a tentative offer, I knew I would have it. So I, 
gave notice at the at the standard and started in December of of 2016. I the see. very last thing I covered was the election. On election day 2016, I was out there at 7 a.m. talking to people after they were um, voting and stuff like that. Uh huh. I like noticed. It, I noticed. A, I've noticed. You probably know I'm a conservative, okay? I, I'm not necessarily a Trump supporter, but I'm a conservative. But I noticed a a, um, a dislike for the media from people on the right, and it's happened, and it's it's kind of unfortunate. Uh-huh. Um, but even from the left now, you get the same thing. When when the president takes a position on Israel, he's getting shunned by the people on the left right now, okay, mm-hmm. and things like that. And I think it's because because of things have gotten so I'm not I don't want to fret I, I like conflict but things have gotten so where I don't think people who are in Congress can sit down and have have a drink afterwards anymore yeah right? and that's yeah. kind of the kind of unfortunate you know one of the things that made me most happy in the world was to give up um, cable news I mean I read real clear politics daily which is an, I think a pretty good source and I read the Washington Post I read I read the Salt Lake Tribune and stuff, and other. I go through Twitter, which is X now, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, you got these people preening on these shows, which, which to me, their monetary system is geared toward keeping people in a state of anger. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a problem too. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like that's what I hear from everybody who knows news: is you have to consume a bunch of sources sometimes conflicting sources and then evaluate it for yourself well if you want to have fun sometime I haven't <laughs> watched for a while but if you if something major happens in the news like the, the Colorado thing might have been a very interesting example mm-hmm. you, could, you could watch Fox for an hour you could watch MSNBC MSNBC for an hour they both may be technically right but they're all covered from a different perspective right? yeah. yeah right right yeah. Um, but then you were basically right about the trajectory of the standard, right? Like, uh, they've just been sort of peeling off all of your coworkers. Yeah, well, it, you could see it happening, and you could see them trying to stop it. Um, you know, and when it happened, it sort of just happened. It didn't, it didn't collapse when I left, all right? And it still hasn't collapsed. It's still hanging in there. But things went down. And then you had, you had Sandusky still owning it for a while. And, and, but then when they sold to Ogden newspapers, which is ironically called Ogden <laughs> right. newspapers, um, most of the editorial staff left immediately because they knew they wouldn't be around anyways because they had a totally different ideological. What Greg Holling tried to do, and he might disagree with me, I think he was trying to get 30,000 people who would be devoted followers of the newspaper. And even that's hard. I think the standard circulation now is about 10,000, okay? Mm. And when I was there, in our heyday, it was, it was, it was tied with the Deseret News or in the 60,000 level, you know, or something. Mm. It's, just, it's just realistic. You don't have the revenue service. And younger kids, I think my kids read the paper, okay? Yeah, right. I mean, my, my kids, they, they look on, on a screen. And the standard needs to hang around because it doesn't have a website. Yeah. No offense. Um, truth. It doesn't have a website that you can market by itself, okay, there's something. To me, that seems like a major opportunity here. There's all of these terrific writers, terrific investigators, all kind of retired. They just need a platform. They need somebody to build a platform. You know, a lot of people have tried. I mean, there's, there's been 25th Street Papers. Yeah. Uh, Don Porter wrote movie reviews for one, I think, after he left. It didn't survive. Yeah. You had a woman, the woman, I can't remember her name. She started only in Ogden. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she started a magazine. I can't remember the... Ogden source or something, yeah. it didn't survive. Yeah. Okay, so someone's got to figure out how could, how to do it. 
Because I think Ogden is, particularly this street and other areas, is, is a wonderful place of culture in this place. Yeah. You know, I'd love to see more bookstores. Mm-hmm. And there was a bookstore in South Ogden that was a coffee shop also. And I'm, I'm terrible. It's right by uh, the Javier's. Weisberg. Weisberg. Wonderful place. I know the author. She retired. The person who bought it just couldn't keep it going. Mm-hmm. All right. So all you've got now is Queen Bee and you've got um, places like this that sometimes sell stuff also. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so upcom- are you working on any blog posts right now? Yeah, like I think I'm going to do something on this Miracle on 34th Street. And then I've a- I also assign Steve stuff sometimes. Um, he can do his own stuff if he wants to, but sometimes he's, he'll take an a- assignment from me. Uh, we, there's always things we want to do. I mean, there's, there's an endless amount of stuff. We don't just do cult films. We also do the old silent movies and the horror films. I think they're cult films anyways, but stuff like that. And, uh-huh. and um, so we'll be, doing, we'll be doing lots of stuff right now. Um, in fact, we'll probably sit down at the end of the year and map out some things we want to do for Plan 9 Crunch. And I want to write, I want to write a blog post. I've been reading a lot of biographies. Uh-huh. And I read biographies from Signature and also from University of Utah and stuff like that. Have you heard of the difference between, um, between archival expose biographies and hagiography biographies? Mm. Okay, okay, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. No. An archival expose is something that places something in its worst context, all right? And then the hagiography is something that is totally sycophantic to the subject. And when I'm reading a biography of, um, of Joseph W. Smith, who was the sixth prophet of the church, he was an explosive personality of man. He lost his temper. He got in fistfights and beat up people as a youngster. His first marriage was a disaster, and he, he may have abused her, okay, at the time. But he also had a lot of good things about him, okay? He was the face of polygamy, too. So the LDS Church will have this series they had of, of prophets. Oh, I could get in trouble for this, but okay, what the heck. And so <laughs> Joseph F. Smith's book <clears throat> was a hagiography, mm. okay? It portrayed him as a kindly uncle. It didn't... But then, if you go to an anti-Mormon source, okay, and there are a lot of them out there, mm. they will portray the archival expose. They will focus only on the negative aspects of the person's life. Well, people are complex. They have different layers. They have good and bad, and they create a whole. Mm-hmm. And so what I love about these biographies that come from Signature and also from university presses, or sometimes from Oxford Press also, um, is they are, they are balanced portrayals that show richly the life of a person. And I try to review books for my Mormon blog that come from these um, subjects. Mm-hmm. In fact, a new one's coming out on Bruce R. McConkie, and I can't wait to read that because he was a very controversial figure in, in the Mormon hierarchy among people, you know. I mean, beloved yeah. as an apostle. Right. And so I want to do a blog post on that, uh-huh. on exploring archive exposés and why they're wrong, but why hagiographies are wrong also. And you have to look, because a lot of people, I think, in the LDS church, younger people leave the church, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Both of my, two of my, my, my people, they're, they're not hostile, but they don't go to church anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I would think that, that you need to know everything about the history, uh-huh. not just the sanitized version, because if you're not prepared to understand that everyone in this world is a sinner and people are good and bad, and you have these unrealistic expectations put upon you by people, maybe not necessarily they didn't mean to, but the way they did it, it can be, it can be really 
soul crushing to learn mm-hmm. things about things that you weren't told, you know? Yeah. It's what I really love about the culture of Mormonism is it is sort of this, you know, let's talk about it, warts and all. And I think you're right that that is what a person sees that they're not being told the whole story and then they wonder what else they're not being told. And so you talk about <coughs> all of explo- it. They can be exploited too. Yeah. It goes both ways, but they can be exploited, all right, on yeah. those things. Um, I'm an active Mormon. I have a temple I recommend. So, and, and, and I guess what you call, I, you call me a true believing Mormon, but I believe in transparency. Mm-hmm. And we used to have the LDS church come to us. We could never get them to provide, provide a columnist, you know, but... You know, mm. I do think there are some, there have been some, um, some movement toward transparency in the last generation from the LDS Church, though. Yeah, right. They have those more Joseph Smith papers, and the new editor of Deseret Book has talked about wanting to be more transparent, too. Hmm. All right. Well, I think I hit all my questions. Okay. Yeah, thanks Can a lot. Can I just say one thing? Shout yeah. out to my wife, Cotty. <laughs> She's wonderful. Okay. Great. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, shout-outs for this episode. Grounds on 25th, that place is a rock in this community. We planned to record this at 2-Bit Street, but since they'd announced that they were shutting down, it's been impossible to get a table there, which is terrific, uh, an RIP to 2-Bit Street. But so we ended up going over to Grounds on 25th. You know, I've made protest signs, uh, I've met hackers and had business meetings and job interviews and so much more at that place. There's a reason people love them. And uh, go check out Doug's blogs. They really are great. Start at plan9crunch.blogspot.com and you'll see links to the rest. Uh, Check out Steve D. Stone's art. It's crazy and colorful and maybe a little nerdy and it's great. Um, I think that's it. Have a great week.